From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to interview Professor Don Stanley, an award-winning instructor who teaches design, social media, and digital marketing courses for the UW-Madison Department of Life Sciences Communication. We thought now would be a great time to get his take on several of the many conversations and controversies surrounding platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Don also owns a digital consultancy firm, 3Reno Media, that provides design and digital marketing services to clients throughout the United States. Thank you so much for joining us today, Don. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here, Adam. Yeah, let's start with some background on you. Uh, I know you're a UW-Madison grad. What did your education look like and like what are your teaching and research interests now? Oh boy, it was it's all over the board. I'm one of those classic stories where I tell my students all the time, not everybody has a straight clear path. Um, so I started out at a military academy, transferred to you with the idea of uh, being a military aviator, transferred to the UW and realized there aren't civilian jobs for military aviation. Uh, so I had to figure out what I wanted to do, why I wanted to do it and how I wanted to do it. And it was really a process over a couple of years of taking different courses and, and getting exposed to different faculty on campus and realizing the, the role that communication plays in creating change in our world. And um, I actually worked on a project uh, working with wolf restoration in the state in the mid 90s and really found out that the restoration of wolves in the state was not about biology, but was really about sociology, psychology and communication. And so I got lucky enough to work on that project and it kind of kickstarted my passion and my interest in what does it take to communicate, communicate accurately and communicate well uh, to be able to create some type of change. And that led me to coming back to school uh, and led me to my current position in the department. And my, my interest um, right now is uh, heavily in the digital marketing, not because I'm passionate about the technology, it's because there's so much disruption that is taking place. I, I equate it in many ways to, this is like us getting the printing press 500 years ago and Gutenberg uh, creating that printing press. And that printing press literally revolutionized the world. It took a long time to do it, but social media and digital media, the access for anybody to publish and to create is very similar, but the timeline is hyper, hyper warp speed. Uh, and so looking at how is that impacting our ability to communicate with one another and to communicate about salient topics and issues, uh, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What are the upsides? What are the downsides? And so for me, it's really fascinating to see how that technology is changing uh, in real time and what we do and how we do it, whether it's with politics, with COVID-19, with personal interest stuff. It's, it's really uh, fascinating to me. Um, sometimes scary, <laughs> uh, sometimes exciting, uh, and everything in between. Yeah, it seems like your research sits at the intersection of so much uh, that is so relevant to the current moment, which is what makes you an excellent 
uh, person to talk to right now. Given what you're all just saying, how has social media and our interactions online evolved just in the last couple of years to uh, where we are today? The, the biggest problem I see is that people have figured out um, how to manipulate the algorithms on things like a Facebook or an Instagram and different technologies. And because they can manipulate them, um, there's this vast concern about things and legitimate concern about misinformation, about something we call the filter bubble, which means the algorithms show us content that we that the algorithms on Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, whatever the platform is that they think we want, we would want and what we would like. And therefore we're getting less diverse views of the world and we're getting fed stuff that is really supporting and, and building um, belief in what, what our world's views are from real simple things all the way up to complex things. And I think that's one of the biggest dangers and challenges about what's evolved, whether it was uh, Russian interference in the 2014, 2015, 2016 era, whether it's conversations about the ethics of TikTok, or excuse me, the ethics of Facebook, and are they liberal biased? Are they conservative biased? How does information, what ethics do they have to put into place to determine what is accurate and goes on a platform and then looking at things like TikTok, which, you know, the first mainstream Chinese owned uh, social media tool, which has now been banned in countries like India, which had the largest TikTok user base in the world at 220 million. Um, all of these things didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, in, in some ways, they existed very minimally five years ago. And so those are things that it's like a living experiment to see. Um, uh, how these tools will work. Because if you look back at when Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook in 2004, the intent was not to grow to be what it is. There's no way he could have visualized and his team could have visualized what this has become. And the impact it has on people and society is a heavy, heavy, heavy weight. And uh, um, in my opinion, they didn't spend a lot of time thinking about that because they didn't realize it was going to be a heavy, heavy, heavy weight. I am sure it it has affected your work so much in just the last couple of years on like what you're focusing on or how fast was that like rapid transition to network TV from local news, from radio, and now to this new beast that we have? Well, if you look at the, at the numbers, one of the slides that I'll often share in my classes talks about how long it took to get to 50 million users. And it took a long, I forget how many hundreds of years to get to 50 million users of people being literate and able to read. And then it took like, 50 years for 50 million people to get radio and then 37 years for people, 50 million people to get television. And it took like 10 or 15 days for people to get 50 million people to download Pokemon Go. So, you know, the, the, the scale and the rate of change is so, so fast that um, the, the, the boundaries that were put in place that could be figured out. So like from the transition from radio to television, there was, you know, okay, how do you do a radio show? How do you set up commercials? How do you vet what content goes on? And then that information carried over to television and there was television producers and television editors and same thing with other technology. And now there isn't. Now you have algorithms that, you know, very, very loosely edit. And, um, you know, which again is good because it's given a lot of disenfranchised people an opportunity uh, to, to have voices. It's given a lot of groups and organizations an opportunity to have a voice that couldn't previously be 
couldn't afford a television commercial or a radio commercial, um, but, but it also has afforded opportunities to people who have malintent or organizations who have malintent. And um, th that rate of change is never gonna get slower. It's only gonna accelerate, which, uh, you know, today, when you listen to this show, it's the slowest technology will evolve in our lifetimes. Every day it's speeding up more and more and more and more and more, which sometimes, you know, it, full, full disclosure, it makes me nervous. So again, I'm, I'm not a technology for technology is just great and we should have it and go for it. Um, I do think there needs to be ethics involved and I do think there needs to be some boundaries involved, but what those are, you know, remains to be determined. And um, I think a lot of times when we look at these companies that create these technologies, and where they create them, they create them from the sense of, hey, this is really exciting. Let's do it for creation's sake and not thinking about the ethics that might uh, play into a platform, might play into how people use technology, how companies collect data with these technologies, all types of things like that. All of that is so interesting, especially that metric with Pokemon Go. Um, <laughs> it seems absolutely unbelievable that so many people would participate, but. Um, I guess the proof is right there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What has this rapid transition or this rapid evolution of the field looked like in your like day-to-day -day work? The, what it's looked like, I've got this, uh, another graph, it's called the MarTech 5000, uh, M-A-R-T-E-C-H. And what it does is it covers just marketing technology, uh, technologies that are available. And in the year 2011, there was 150 marketing technologies and tools available. So that included social media platforms, lead generation platforms, web platforms that allow you to collect information and data. So that was 2011. In 2019, there was over 8,500 tools. So we went from 150 tools and technologies to over 8,000. So what that means is you can't keep up with everything as an expert, you know, and the, the idea of expertise is almost foolhardy in a sense because things evolve and change so fast to have a sense of the scale of everything is really, really difficult to do. And then also to be really, really, really good at understanding how a particular technology, whether it's Snapchat or Facebook or TikTok or Reddit or whatever platform you want to look at, it's getting harder and harder to know those well to be able to be a uh, uh, really high level user because even those are getting so nuanced that as new platforms are added on, those platforms add new uh, features. So for example, I was just uh, on the local ABC news affiliate talking about TikTok two weeks ago and um, what, what, the, what the concerns were with TikTok and I said, I bet you within the next couple of weeks, next couple of months, you're gonna find out that Facebook is developing a, a TikTok um, copycat essentially because uh, they, that's what they're famous for doing. You know, they, they stole a chunk of Snapchat's market when Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, started offering stories and then Facebook started offering stories. And uh, two days later, um, Instagram announced that they're uh, producing, and Facebook announced that they're producing a technology called Reels, R-E-E-L-S. And Reels is basically the American owned version of TikTok. So the example there is that these things are continually evolving and adding new features. So even if I just want to be an expert Instagram user, it's really hard to do. So try to 
you know, go out and look at more and more of the technologies. It's, it's definitely a challenge. You never get bored. I will tell you that it's not, not, uh, not something you'll ever feel stagnant in. This is all so, so interesting to me, especially like as an avid, avid user of all of these social media sites, especially recently TikTok, it is so interesting to hear this side of it. Absolutely. And with, and with TikTok in particular, you know, when you have multiple countries banning the technology, again, India had, I think the exact number was 220 million active TikTok accounts, which was the highest in the world. Um, and they banned it in the in their country. And then I think 50 other nations, roughly 50 other nations have done that. The U.S. military and the U.S. government banning it. Um, you know, that's another layer and another feature that in the past when we thought of an Instagram or a Google or a Facebook, uh, Snapchat, you know, you're talking all American-based companies. Um, and now that other players can get involved and people who are end users like yourself probably never thought, Hey, where's TikTok from? You're probably thinking, hey, TikTok is cool, it's fun, it's interesting, which it is. It, it definitely is. But taking that step back and thinking about who owns this technology and what are they doing with the data and why are they collecting it and what are they looking for and are they really just creating it to be fun and make some advertising dollars or is there more to it? Um, and that's heavy to think about. I've got three kids and I know I don't want to think about it with them. I just go have fun on TikTok, you know, but, but, um, there are legitimate concerns that, uh, we have to think about, but because they're gamified and they're made so fun and so interesting, it, from a psychological standpoint a neurological standpoint, it's really hard to say no to those tools as well. What is your take on some of like the the longevity of some of these platforms like this is kind of getting into like prediction looking down the road kind of territory which is admittedly and i'm sure you'd say really hard in this field um, it is. but like especially thinking about like uh the death of vine like how it rose and then fell so fast uh mm -hmm. are we still going to be talking about twitter snapchat facebook in five years or are we going to think of these as like myspaces uh i do not think facebook's ever going to go away yeah. So the reason that I say that is one, they have a ton of money and capital. So what do they do? The Facebook blueprint is let other people and other platforms create demand and then integrate the, that technology into their platform. There's, there's a theory called the diffusion of innovations. And if you look up the diffusion of innovations, it explains to a level why people do adopt technologies and why they don't. And because people, one, one of the um, terms is relative advantage. And what relative advantage means is, what's the benefit of me switching from one platform to another? So the example that I like to give is, some of us remember Google Plus. And Google Plus was Google's uh, tool to try to um, take on Facebook and, and create a social network. And it was cool. I loved a lot of the features of it. A lot of my colleagues and friends who were New York Times bestselling authors, work in the consulting world, making $50,000 an hour as keynote speakers, loved Google Plus as well. But the problem was, the downside to it was, if I went on Google Plus, I would have to convince you and all of my friends to go over to Google Plus. And a lot of us were like, eh, we don't wanna do it. We already have a foothold here. It's just too much of a pain to try to move all my friends over. I'm just sticking with Facebook. Well, Facebook's tentacles are in WeChat, 
they're in um, Instagram, they're you know, in all of these different platforms. And what they've done is they've made it harder and harder and harder to move away from the platform. So like when I ask my students a lot of times in my classes, what's your least favorite social network that you use? They say Facebook and I say, well, why do you use it? Well, because all of my family is on it. So if I leave it, my family's not gonna be able to keep up to date. That is a huge advantage. So all Facebook is gonna continue to do is to purchase up things like an Instagram, purchase up um, a message, you know, tools and build out tools like Messenger, create a Snapchat copycat, like, or excuse me, a TikTok copycat like Reels, create a Snapchat copycat like the stories. And people are just going to stay on the platform. Um, whether or not we like it, I'm, I'm not a fan of Facebook as a company, um, but it's just reality. If you look at how people transition technologies and why they transition technologies, I used to always be like, oh, this is going to be the next thing. This is going to be the next thing. And then I started looking at it from a pure business perspective and a human behavior perspective. And it's like, as long as Facebook stays in the good graces of the government and doesn't become hyper, hyper, hyper regulated, they just, they're, they're just going to, you know, they're just going to continue to buy platforms and integrate things in and people will never, never know uh, that, wow, I, I never thought Instagram was owned by Facebook. Because so, you know, people will say to me, I don't use Facebook. I'm like, yes, you do. No, I don't. I don't give Facebook any of my data. I use Instagram. And it's like, exactly, <laughs> exactly my point. So, um, so th that's, they have that capital to go in and to say to somebody, I'll offer you $5 billion for this. And working with a lot of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurial startups in the tech sector, I don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time saying no to five billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, you you bring up a lot of really important concepts there, and like especially like the the social contract we kind of have made with uh, with mm -hmm. Facebook, um, and how it is just so tied into society now. I think so, that's really important for for people to consider about themselves that not a lot of people think about. But you yep. like also inherently in all this is the business and capital oriented side of all this where at the end of the day Facebook is just trying to make money and like a lot of people don't realize that uh, when you're interacting with these like free social media sites it's not for free uh, companies are just turning around and selling your data that's exactly right and that's that's one of the things that's a challenge is and even for me who knows that that's not incentive enough to not be on the platform because it's where people are. So you have to make this conscious decision of, do I use it or do I ignore it? And as a communicator in particular, and I'm, you know, work on a ton of different stuff. Uh, I, I, I try to have my hands in a lot of different fields just to get a sense of what are the principles that work across, um, across industry, across topic area, whether I'm working on a state COVID-19 task force or I'm working with a NFL athlete, the concepts are still the same is that that's where people go to communicate. So to not actively participate as a communicator or even passively participate as a communicator is not really an option. Um, so, so it is a challenge. And then for people who grow up with these technologies that have never experienced the world without them, you just assume that I can use them because everybody else is using them and we don't give much thought to Again, I don't know anybody who's ever read an end user license agreement when they've downloaded an app. Uh, you know, maybe there, maybe an attorney friend or two somewhere out there, but most of them are, if they're honest, will say no, even they don't read it. Um, 
So, so it is really interesting, you know, not thinking of that social contract of how much data we're giving, what access we're giving to people. And that's why I think TikTok is, is a very concerning technology because, uh, you know, because it is Chinese based. They say they're not owned by the Chinese government. They say they don't have interaction with the Chinese government. Um, but Huawei had said that as well, the, the cell phone company, and there's clear interactions and partnerships in different parts of China where that technology that Huawei has developed is, is pretty concerning. So um, doesn't mean that Facebook and YouTube and Google and other tools are using our, our data nicely either. Um, but I think if we look back at the Cambridge Analytica co content from the 2016 elections, you know, that, that what we give away, um, I think sometimes all of us want to put in our, our heads in the sand a bit to not think about it because it is scary, you know. It's like, okay, how do I use it, but not, how do I stay, how do I not use it, but stay connected with the world? That's really, really hard to do. Yeah, it's all, all trade-off and it's so, um, so ingrained in our society now, but I'm sure we could talk about these things like on a whole other episode of the podcast, but we should probably turn to advertising now. So kind of historically, there have been companies that lean into advertising and marketing for political reasons and companies that definitely shy away from doing any kind of political or uh, advertising at all or including political messages in any of their advertising. Is there evidence that there is more of an effort recently among businesses and corporations to advertise to certain people based on like their political beliefs? Like um, I'm, I'm thinking with this like uh, purposely like uh, making ads where you're showcasing um, like a variance of like family type, you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and, and I don't know the data very well off the top of my head. Uh, but yes, there's much more of a push to to incorporate more diversity, uh, more inclusiveness, whether it's messages, whether it's uh, making sure to highlight different types of uh, partnerships and relationships, different ethnicities, different age groups. Um, and that's one thing that you can do with the digital media is you can hyper target people and create one create 15 different ads for one topic and make sure the ad gets targeted the the ad that of the 15 that's going to relate the most to your audience gets targeted to them um and that's that's definitely something that we talk about and i've been preaching this since the year 2000 is that we narrow cast there's no such thing as broadcast um and we are hyper hyper niche in terms of what we want as a um, as a uh, audience, we want things that relate to us and demonstrate that they're talking to us, not to a big broad audience. So that is really, really something um, that that advertisers have picked up on and have put a lot of energy into. Can you point to like a reason or a set of reasons why a company might go political or might not? I think, I think the biggest reason for companies to go political is because people are looking to take, looking for companies and organizations to take a stand and lead in some way. And whether that's NASCAR banning the uh, Confederate flag, whether that's the MyPillow gentleman and his company saying we support Donald Trump, um, there's there, people want to know what companies stand for. And, and this is actually, there's some interesting data 
uh, that's highlighted in a book called Marketing Rebellion by Mark Schaefer, which is a, a book for lay people, a really good book. And it highlights how millennials, uh, 38 and younger is where, where he puts millennials, if I recall correctly, what they are doing is they're looking to um, purchase from companies where they know what the companies stand for. So the rise of craft beers, the rise of locally manufactured products, the rise of locally produced food, all of those things are salient because people in that millennial generation, again, who have spending power, you know, again, 38 and on down, um, because a lot of people will think of millennials as early 20-somethings. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> they're, they're not. They're people who are in, you know, with money and in positions of power, et cetera. They want to have a sense of when I'm purchasing something, is it supporting what I believe in? And so it almost behooves companies to take, take a stance, whether, again, like pro sports um, or NASCAR or the MyPillow guy or, or anything in between. The Goya that just happened, you know, with, with President Trump at the White House. Um, and of course, you're going to disenfranchise people because people are so divisive. Things are so divisive today. But I think it's something that, that is an expectation from the audience. It's very hard to remain politically neutral on different topics. What strikes me so much about that is when companies will like outwardly be very political or you know like will change their um their social media avatars during the month of june to like show support like pride movements but then um will kind of secretly or not publicize the fact that they're contributing large amounts of money to certain political candidates and in particular i'm thinking of kelly loffler in this uh sure but I, that's just like an aside thought. Uh, yeah, but, but, but that, that's very common if you, unfortunately or fortunately, um, that a lot of companies will contribute to both political candidates. They'll put a lot more money into the one they support, but to cover their bases, they'll also contribute to the other candidate and say, hey, we contributed to both. Look, you know, we're, we're middle of the road, which again is getting harder and harder to do. Um, in many ways, and I'm not a political scientist, so I can't speak eloquently to it, but um, it is a challenge because it's harder for people to say, our company is Black Lives Matter supporters and Blue Lives Matter supporters. People are, how can you be that? How can you, you know, and so to have a conversation around that is harder and harder to do because things, again, have become so divisive. So um, it'll be interesting to see with this upcoming political, uh, elections and then and then going forward too uh because the divisiveness regardless of who's going to get in office i don't think is going to go away anytime soon uh to see how companies market and advertise uh when there are salient things like should we be wearing masks and should we be promoting wearing masks if i'm a home depot or i'm a walmart is is our masks a political thing where you know for a long time they have been and so for Walmart to take a stance uh, and say, well, no, we're going to require them, that's, that, that's a big statement in many ways. Um, same thing when you look at, uh, you know, taking stances on topics related to Black Lives Matter or, you know, whatever it is, um, I think it's going to be harder and harder for companies and there's going to be more and more pressure to try to remain Neutral and some of the small companies that I work with through my consultancy are struggling with that where they they don't feel like they're in a position to take a really strong stand one way or the other 
and, and they're struggling because of that, because they feel like they're being pressured by both sides to who are you with? Who are you with? So it's going to be an interesting couple of years for sure. Yeah, those are all definitely things that I have not thought about before. Turning back now to like advertising, what has been your take on the current situation with Facebook? Um, and we know some of your thoughts on Facebook, but with like the ad boycott that a lot of companies are moving forward with on uh, Facebook and kind of the really odd position that Facebook has put itself in with censorship and uh, making sure that posts are meeting community guidelines or not spreading misinformation? Yeah, the biggest challenge that you run into in a position like Facebook uh, is when you think again about the creation of it, you know, created by a bunch of 20 something year old, early 20 something year old guys who at that time, I, at my age back then, I wouldn't have been thinking about ethics and moral and, and who knew that it would go from something other than like a, almost like a dating uh, talk, you know, gossip site to what it's become. So, so the big challenge is thinking about who does institute the ethics, who does institute the morals. Um, one thing that I will point out is that when one of the biggest challenges is when one side gets noisy and there's an expected response that if that keeps happening back and forth and back and forth, oh, you're too conservative. No, now you're too liberal. No, you're too conservative. Now you're too liberal. It puts Facebook in a really tough position, especially if they are going to be dealing with boycotts, especially if they're going to be potentially dealing with some of the legal ramifications, which they do in Europe. There are legal uh, and ethical boundaries in Europe that do not exist in the United States. But Facebook exists for advertising revenue, period. The last number I checked, and it was a couple of months ago, so I don't know how accurate it was, Facebook was worth $485 billion. Stop and think about that. $485 billion. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. And what percentage of that is based off of ad revenue? A, a large chunk, right? So when advertisers start pulling money, I think that's interesting. But one of the questions is, what do those advertisers want? Right? So what happens if the NRA is is heavily invested because what the Trump organization, the Trump campaign, the Trump presidency puts way more money into Facebook than, than the democratic candidates have. So where's the obligation for Facebook? What, what, you know, if something's being said that's untruthful by either side, imagine that's flipped. What do they do and how do they do it? And one of the, one of the concerning things for me, and this is not a political statement, it's an observation was in, um, 2016, I think it was August 28th, 2016, Donald Trump and, and other conservative pundits said that Facebook was very, very, very heavily liberal biased. So Facebook agreed to have a group of conservative leaders come to Menlo Park to talk to them about their biases or perceived biases. And what ended up happening was shortly thereafter, Facebook got rid of uh, Facebook got rid of their um, their uh, human editors on their on their uh, algorithm. Shortly thereafter, you started seeing Russian-based ads start to come into play. People didn't know they were Russian-based, but the algorithm started getting manipulated. The interesting thing was in 
And, and so if you look at uh, Dr. Youngmi Kim's from, uh, research from our campus, she's one of the world's leading authorities on the Facebook ads and Russian interference uh, work. Um, very, very fascinating stuff. But what was interesting was in 2018, almost to the day, August 29th, 2018, before the midterm elections, President Trump said, Google is super biased. We want Google to change their algorithm. And Google did not capitulate. They did not uh, change their, their stance. Again, it's not a political statement, it's an observation. But when Facebook changed their stance, the, the algorithm became more easily manipulated by foreign adversaries. And, and it seemed to me that that was a technique that was tried again in 2018. So it's interesting you know, to think about government regulation and advertising money and how those might affect these companies and what does free speech mean online and do people really understand what free speech actually means, um, which I don't think most people do. I don't think most people have a clear understanding of that. And it makes things really complex uh, to decide. You know, when you had three major TV stations and PBS, it was easy to have human editors in place to determine what worked and what didn't. And what was right now, now you've got a gazillion publishers and you've got these platforms that if you don't let me publish my stuff, I'm going to complain or I'm going to go to another platform and they want to keep people around because that means advertising dollars. So it gets pretty complex. There's no easy answer. I'm really glad you brought up the, uh, the problem of free speech on the internet because there, like it is uh, a problem that goes even to the Supreme Court. Um, mm -hmm. I've taken the, the First Amendment class here at UW um, under uh, Howard Schweber, who we've had on the podcast. And one of the major tenets of free speech case law is whether something is like public or private, and especially concerning like the public domain and the you know, free marketplace of ideas. Um, where a lot of people are trying to argue the internet has become this new like public sphere where mm -hmm. there's uh, free speech. But um, what do you think of that? Uh, like I, I would imagine that because of algorithms and because of the way that timelines work, it is just like simply not that. Yeah, I, and yes. And one of the challenges too is what was public 10, 15, maybe 20 years ago is different. So the example that I like to give um, I have a, a, a interest and have a family history of military service. And if you look at one of the most effective groups ever to use social media, it was ISIS. ISIS did a phenomenal, phenomenal job, unfortunately, a phenomenal job of recruiting, of share, sharing their message. They had actually a huge media team. That's, is that free speech for them to be able to produce that? They're not in the United States either, right? So now we expand beyond the boundaries of the 50 states and our territories. So what do you allow? What is deemed hate speech? What is deemed terrorism? What is deemed, that's really, really, really tricky stuff. Um, and so to think about that, again, because these platforms weren't built in that way to, to think about who sets the rules and they're private companies, you know, the uh, publicly traded, but you know, that, and that's another, another layer uh, that you could probably speak to more eloquently than I can, but that's another layer. And again, people think that free speech means I can say whatever I want, whenever I want, but I can't go into a crowded movie theater and, and yell fire, right? I'm going to get in trouble for that because that violates different rules, different laws, different regulations. And so what do we allow on these networks? Uh, do we allow a group like ISIS or a hate group 
a white supremacist hate group or whatever to to use the platform to push an agenda that you know promotes radicalization or promotes hate or promotes violence um you know that's that's really 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 tricky tricky stuff that um again we're we're kind of in the wild west in many ways of this just being so new you know it'll be i wish i could fast forward 10 to 15 years just to see uh what what becomes of this what what because when it started out it was like this is great everybody can publish and then it's become wait a second everybody can publish and that means people without ethics without morals with you know nefarious goals like isis can can do some pretty incredible harmful things and so so i that that's a challenge too again because it isn't just in the united states it, it, and and does tiktok is tiktok required because it's a chinese owned company to follow us first amendment regulations i don't know you know so it gets really really messy because it it is international yeah it's so tricky so incredibly fascinating but we are unfortunately running out of time. And I think we should probably end on a positive note since we've been talking so much. Um, but what makes you hopeful about social media and digital communications in the future? I think there are a lot of groups that are doing good. And I think the more people become aware that they can put pressure on platforms like Facebook and Instagram, I'm really curious what these boycotts do. But I think if we have citizen level pushes that we can create large scale change. And the goal of these companies is to keep eyeballs on platforms. And so if we can hold them to standards that um, where these tools and technologies can serve the greater good, and there's clear examples. I used to teach a social media for social change class, and it, there's clear examples where social media does phenomenally powerful, phenomenally positive things. Um, I think that that's a big key. So I think for all of us to become cognizant and to just push a little bit uh, for these platforms to make sure that we're interacting with positive content because that uh, moves the needle on these algorithms and just try to make it what we want it to be. You know, don't get discouraged. Um, a small group of people being consistent and being proactive can change the world and we can do that at scale on social media. And, uh, I, you know, I think there are definite reasons for optimism, especially when I look at a lot of young people that I mentor uh, who are high school aged and younger who uh, use these technologies and they want the world to be a better place. They want to have some of the standards and ethics in place. So, so I'm optimistic for that reason as well. Yeah, that is all incredible advice, incredible things to move forward thinking about. Thank you so much, Professor Don Stanley, for joining us today. I'm sure we will want to talk to you again very soon because this is an incredibly fascinating topic. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on, and I appreciate the, uh, the time. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.